so we've reached the end, and today is the bit that hopefully things come together a little bit. Um, I said that last night death and life go together, so there's still a lot of death in what we're going to look at, but now you're going to see the shafts of light that come in so clearly in these uh, particular passages that we're going to look at. So I want to just give us two things this morning as we finish, one, one from chapter 9 and one from chapter 11. We're going to do them in order here. The first thing... Now, this is the idea that death is the third point that we didn't get to yesterday, that death is an artist, death is a surgeon, death is a preacher, and death is an artist. It's actually, in Ecclesiastes, it is actually your coming death that gives you the paintbrush for your life, that says, go now and live, because that's coming, go now and live as fully as you, you possibly can. So let, let, let's look at this together in chapter 9, then, first of all, this first... Um, <clears throat> First passage. I want to show you three things from here, from chapter nine. I'm going to do the first, uh, the first one really quickly because we've we've been doing this all weekend. Verses one to six of chapter nine. The one thing in life which is certain. Okay. I'm going to show you the one thing in life that is certain. Secondly, the many things in life that are uncertain, and the simple things in life that are wise. One thing in life that is certain, verses 1 to 6, then we're going to go to the, to the other end of the chapter, verses uh, 9 to 10, uh, no, sorry, verses 11 to 12, the many things in life that are uncertain, verses 11 to 12, and then sandwiched in between those two bits, 7, 7 to 10, the simple things in life that are wise. I don't really need to say much about the first, the first point, the one thing in life which is certain, you see it there in verse Verses 1 and 2, I laid all this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And then look at this, verse 2, the righteous and the wise, so the two, the two opposites in life, it is the same end for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. Everybody goes in the ground at the end. Everybody dies. No matter how you've lived, what you've been like, there is one thing in life that is certain. Verse, isn't verse 6 incredible? One day, that intense love that you have for somebody, that hatred that uh, you, you, you nurture and nourish against somebody that burns deep within you all through all through your life, that, that envy that you have of somebody else, that those those intense emotions that teachers say that, that you feel and that matter so much to you that just control your life in such such an amazing way. Everybody else before you is now long dead and buried, body is cold, felt those same white hot emotions, and yet it's over. They're, they're gone, it's finished. There is only one thing in life that is certain, the only certainty that one day you will die, unless the Lord Jesus comes back before that, of course. But what, what happens to, to human beings, the one thing that you know happens to them, they will die. There is one thing in life that is certain, but look at verse 11, there are many things in life that are uncertain. Many things in life that are uncertain. This is a, this is a kind of way that Ecclesiastes works, as a kind of, you, you, you know you're going to die, and before you die, you, you really don't have much control over what happens to you. The, the, the world is, is, to us, seemingly random and often chaotic. 
The first level is strange, isn't it? I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise. And we think, but hang on, it, it is. It is Usain Bolt who wins 100 metres. It is um, Man City who wins the league. It is, the, it is the person with the brains that gets to Oxford and Cambridge. It is the person with um, ability and intelligence that gets the top jobs. Okay? The teacher isn't saying, he's not saying, no, of course of course, it's not like that. The teacher knows that it's like that. And at the same time, look at the end of verse 11, the teacher knows that time and chance happens to them all. In, in other words, as that gun goes to start the 100 meter race, you think Usain Bolt is going to win it. And yet it is not absolutely guaranteed that he will win it. Is it? Although, although we have that incredible uh, purple patch all through his career where he seemed to be winning it, w winning everything. In between one of the Olympics, a world championships, he was disqualified. Disqualified for a false start. You can go to the Euros and you expect it's going to be Italy, France, Northern Ireland to win it. <laughs> but nine, what year was it? 90, 92 Denmark? 92 Denmark. It was exactly what I was thinking of. Greece. <laughs> <laughs> one year, Denmark are going to win the Euros. And nobody, see, nobody saw it coming, nobody expected it to happen. Uh, you, you get those amazing tweets, don't you, all the way through the Champions League and uh, Europa League of certain teams tweeting out about their opposition, almost literally say, of course we're going to win. And then, of course, they lose and people love sticking them back. The tweet goes viral after it turns out that they haven't won. And, and, and life is like that, okay? No matter, no, matter, no matter what you predict, no matter what you think is going to happen, it may not happen. You do not have absolute control and mastery over every every part of life. So already through the weekend, I've spoken to, to some of you trying to wrestle with, I'm doing this job, but should I be doing this instead? Should I be going into full-time Christian work? Or how do I know what God wants me to do through life? And at least one chap, he's not here, he went home last night, one chap I spoke to, I have to say to him, I have no idea, I don't know. I don't, I've just spoken to you in one conversation, I can't tell what you should do. You need to find other wise people around you to give you that kind of advice about what the future might look like. Ecclesiastes says, whatever, whatever you think the future might look like, whatever your greatest dreams are, and we're going to see in a moment, you should have great dreams. Please dream big for your life and aim big for it and try and fulfill your ambitions. Do as much as you possibly can. And as you do that, just know it might never happen. You might not get the dream job, you might not find the perfect partner, you might not have the big house, you might not have the career, or you might. You, you might get all of those things. Time and chance, isn't it amazing to have the word chance in the Bible? Time and chance happens to them all. The word chance is literally happenings. Time and happenings happen to them all. In other words, things happen. Things you didn't see coming down the road happen. Because of verse 12, man does not know his time. The, the, the fish swimming along wasn't expecting to get caught that day. The bird flying wasn't expecting to be dead in a snare by the end of the day. Children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So 2009 in Aberdeen, 16 men boarded a helicopter to leave a North Sea oil rig platform flying back to Aberdeen. And not, not one of them made it. Helicopter crash. And for a, a city like Aberdeen, based at the minute still around so much oil and gas industry, 
a tragedy like that was devastating for a city. Not one of those men boarded the helicopter thinking I won't make it home. And yet, it, 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 it happens. So there's one thing in life that is certain. There are many things in life that are uncertain. But look at verse 7. Okay. Here are the simple things in life that are wise. Here are the simple things in life that are wise. Let's just read them again and enjoy them. Go, and, and, and this is a strong command, okay? This is, this is an imperative from God. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, enjoy your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going. Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Those are the simple things in life Sandwiched in between the one thing that you know is certain that is coming, that the life ahead of you that you don't know how it's going to work out. What do I do, teacher, preacher of Ecclesiastes, with those two extremes? The only thing I know is I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So what should I do today? Eat, drink, and be merry. That is the gospel of Ecclesiastes. This world in which you live is good. And God has given you good things to do. Pursue life in relationship with others. And, and look, look, at that, look at that last phrase at the end of verse 7. Do these things with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. When you enjoy God's good gifts, God is happy. How do I please God today? What, what does God want me to do today? He wants you to enjoy the things that God has given you. So I, I gave you the illustration today about parents with uh, children on Christmas Day. What, what the parent wants is to see the delight in the child's face. And I've learned through life that this never ends. So I'm 46, and every Christmas my mum says to me, what do you want for Christmas? And, you know, you've been, we've been through all that. We've moved from presents, right? It's just cash, isn't it? Cold heart. <laughs> what you're hoping for. Um, it's as good as it gets. And yet, mum, my mum said, I don't want to, I want, what do you want to open on Christmas Day? And she said, no, we'll come over for lunch and we'll see the presents, we'll see you open them. Just parental sheer delight at watching me open another pair of socks. It's what it means to be a father, to be a mother. The sheer delight in giving something to others and seeing their joy in opening what you've given to them. I hope you know God is like that, that you have a heavenly Father who, who gives good gifts. The Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Now, praying to a perfect Father, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need. And I, I want to say, friends, that if you have that kind of attitude to life, you will, you will become a profoundly grateful person. 
I have said to that at some point that one, I think one, and you see this all the time in different walks of life, one of the worst types of people is an entitled person. Um, you see it with sports stars, don't they? They get so used to having everything uh, done for them and all the rest of it. They just, this is this, I, I deserve this. But if you get out of bed each day and think that the food that I'm about to eat and the clothes I'm about to wear and the people I'm about to be with are God's gift to me that I do not deserve, Oh, you're going, you're going to live a very wise, contented life. And you see this sometimes, um, just like you get the, the sports stars, you see it the opposite in, in Christian men and women who truly understand who they are before God in this world that God has given. There's a really lovely story about John Stott, um, who died a few years ago. Um, I have never, ever heard anybody talk about <coughs> John Stott being proud, uh, being domineering, being harsh, being, <coughs> being materialistic, being possessive. All you ever hear about John Stott is how gentle he was, how, how gracious he was. He was known and loved by everybody who worked closely with him. He was known as Uncle John to his study assistants, his regular stream of study assistants. And uh, one of his study assistants tells the story that when Uncle John was working, he used to bring... Uh, John Stott, a cup of tea. So the routine was he'd be at his desk all afternoon and cups of tea through the afternoon or through the week, whatever. Every time he put a cup of tea down on John Stott's desk, he heard John Stott mutter to himself, thank you, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And the study assistant kept, you know, he'd do this. In the end, it got on the study assistant's nerves so much that one day he put it down and he, he heard, he walked away, he heard John stop and mutter again, thank you, I'm not worthy. And he turned around and said, Uncle John, it's just a cup of tea. It's all it is, a cup of tea. And John stopped and said, ah yes, just a cup of tea, but it's also the thin end of the wedge. Isn't that true? That if you, if you stop being grateful for this, this cup of tea, you will soon stop being grateful for the next bigger thing and the bigger thing after that, and the bigger thing after that. It's the thin end of the wedge, friends, to, to, to not be grateful for what you've had already today. Amazing building, amazing surroundings, amazing people, amazing food, clothes to wear, health in your body, strength in your bones. The simple things in life are wise. And that is what makes God happy. That is what delights God. Now, I think all of these things here, verses 8 down to uh, the rest of the verse, down to the end of verse 10, your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head, dress well, keep yourself well. The, the, the fact that one day we will be in heaven forever does not mean that this life in this world does not matter. Look after yourself and enjoy the things in life that are there to be enjoyed. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. If you're married and you end up simply living together, not enjoying life together, you end up tolerating the person you're married to or coping with the person you're married to, you are not enjoying life the way that God intended it to be lived. So what, what, what I think is happening here is that this, th these things are not an exhaustive list, okay? How do I enjoy my life? I've got to find a wife, I've got to dress, I don't really like white, don't... Got to oil in my head's a bit weird. I can get the eating and the drinking bit. But the point is, no, that's not a definitive list. It's a representative list 
of the kind of things that God has given in the world that you do not need huge wealth or success to simply enjoy. Okay? So here's my attempt at expanding this kind of lesson. If the teacher was writing today, I think he'd be happy to include these sorts of things in the list. Okay, this is um, excerpt from the book. Ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, men, boys, ring your mum, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, shape someone else's life by laying down your own. Okay? All that is is my attempt to put these verses into modern day language. Your job is to go and expand the list, okay, according to who you are, your temperament, your personality. Maybe things there would be awful to you, but there's going to be things that are missing from that list that, that you can you can add. That is how life is meant to be lived. Okay? To take the best that God has given and and go after it. And go after it because you know one day you will die and because you know that so many things are uncertain in front of you. Don't think, okay, one day I'm going to do ABC. One day I'm going to do these things because you might be dead, you might be dead tomorrow. Do, do them now while you can. Grab life with both hands and do these things while you have health and strength in your body. Let, let, let's go to chapter chapter 11. Here's, here's, that, that's the first thing. Pursue life in relationship. Here's the second thing. Pursue joy in gratitude. Pursue joy in gratitude. So do you see how in chapter 9 you've got death and life kind of mixed together like that? You get the same thing in chapter 11. Let, let, let me give you a, a number of things that we do not know how to do in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 2, we do not know how to, predict, how to predict the future, do we? Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Nobody saw 9-11 coming. Nobody saw 2009 North Sea disaster coming. Nobody sees the things that end up on the news and dominating. You wake up, I, the morning I flew to Dallas last week, I, in the airport, turned on my phone and saw the news about the shooting in Valde in Texas. And of course these things happen in America, but I didn't wake up thinking that was going to happen today. These things happen and we do not know how to predict the future. Verse 5, we do not know how to do what only God can do. That beautiful verse, you do, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, how on earth is it possible that a human being conceived in a woman's womb is someone who will live forever. It's an astonishing thing is that no ultrasound can show you that, no understanding of DNA and genetics and biology. We will never be able to understand how God does that, how God takes a finite mortal human being and puts a spirit within them that will either be in heaven or hell. 
eternal bread, sorry, eternal judgment. We do not know how to predict the future. We do not know how to do what only God can do. We do not know how to guarantee success or failure, verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It's a way of saying, look, work in the mornings, okay, and don't spend every evening simply watching Netflix box sets. Don't withhold your hand in the evening, because maybe you won't be employed in two years' time. Maybe the work of your hand in the morning, the seed that you plant, won't come to anything. But we don't know how to guarantee success or failure in life. Don't be a one-trick pony. Have, a, have other things up your sleeve. Don't, don't be idle. Don't be lazy. Verse 6 is saying, we don't know how to predict the future. We don't know how to do what only God can do. We don't know how to guarantee success and failure. And so because of that, because of that, verse 7, life is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is fleeting. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Three things we don't know how to do. The future, how to do what only God can do, how to guarantee success and avoid failure. But here's the thing that we do know. Wise living pursues joy. And wise living that pursues joy is its own reward. And Derek Kidner in his commentary says that verse 7, verse 7 is about the sheer delight of being alive. Enjoying light. Wasn't it yesterday? Wasn't it beautiful yesterday? The warmth, the warmth of the sun. Simply being out in a beautiful place in beautiful weather. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. I, I, want, I, want, I want us to get this really clear that that is a command. Okay? Look, look at it. Rejoice. We're, we're, we're all okay with God saying, do not, um, do not commit adultery, do not do this, do not do that, do this instead, but an actual command to rejoice, and it, it, it gets stronger in that verse, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you. Another translation is, let your heart give you joy. And that is as much a command from God to you as do not commit adultery, or all the other commands that we're so good at, at uh, spotting through the Bible. Do not get drunk on wine. Do not do this. Be joyful. Let your heart rejoice. Look, look, at, this, look at this phrase from uh, one commentator on this verse. He says this, Human beings are supposed to enjoy life to the full because that is their divinely assigned portion. What, 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 what? Well, let me finish the quote. And God calls, in, calls one into account for failure to enjoy. Enjoyment is not only permitted, it is commanded. It is not only an opportunity. It is a divine imperative. So if, if you go to the end of verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. I don't think that reference there to judgment is God saying, look, go and have fun, but 
be really careful. Remember, God's a judge at the end of it. Be really careful. Be really careful how you enjoy yourself. It, it, it could be that. But I think the verse is actually saying God is going to hold us to account over how joyful we were with what he gave. So the, the, the parent who gives to the child, who takes Bud's light here, and after two days has turfed it off to the side, not interested anymore, and the parent, what does the parent feel? Like, I, I bought that, I, I gave you that good gift. Why are you treating it like that? Why are you ignoring it? Why are you not playing with it and enjoying it? Deuteronomy chapter 28. <coughs> Listen to this. There is a stunning surprise in these, these verses. Here is, here is Moses preaching to the people about what life in the land is meant to look like. Okay? All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes he commanded you. That, that's familiar to us, isn't it? Disobedience leads to God's punishment. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. So what is it that the people got wrong? Here's what they got wrong. Here's why the punishment will fall on the people. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Isn't it an amazing thing, friends, that a commentator can take the book of Ecclesiastes and say that the middle autobiographical bit is unorthodox and out of sync with the whole Bible? It is perfectly in line with the whole Bible. Curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So, what was the nerve the serpent touched in Eden with Eve? That he made Eve say, is this it, God? Is this all you're giving us? What did God give the people of Israel in the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey, figs, grapes, everything they could possibly do. And what did the people say to God in the, in, in the promised land? Is, is this it? Is this, is this all you're giving us, God? Therefore you shall serve your enemies. It's what happened to the people, wasn't it? Taken out of the land in exile and punishment, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and in thirst and lacking everything. Do you see the flip side, the opposite? You had abundance. Now you have hunger and thirst, nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. You know, when, when, when COVID rolled into town, March 2020, we went through those first few months of totally disorientating recalibration of our lives. Isn't it true that by, by, by April 2020, isn't it true that 2019 was the best year that ever been? Remember that? Remember that feeling of looking back? I used to be able to get in a plane, I used to be able to travel, I used to be able to see my friends, I used to be able to hug people. And the abundance of things we took for granted until it was taken away from us. Think about the people of Ukraine right now. What would they say the, the ultimate good life consisted? A year ago. Life simply a year ago without the country being devastated. The, the ordinary simple things in life that we think are not enough and we need more. When God takes them away from you, you discover in fact they were all you needed. 
And when our response to the good things that God has given is simply to just treat them as our right and to move on to bigger and better things, we've missed the very heartbeat of the way the Bible works. These good things I've given to you as creatures are for you to enjoy. So there's a man called Douglas Jones in America who's written a really beautiful essay on this verse in Deuteronomy. Uh, he has this lovely phrase. He says, as, as you're reading Deuteronomy, you're reading it, and then you get to verse 47, and you keep coming back to it. You say, no, hang on, this must be a divine typo. That this must be a mistake. Since when, he says, since when was joy the pivot of reality? Since when was joy the very center of the, everything that God wants for us? And he says this, look at this. He says, the broad Christian community has many, many books on joy, but few of them appear to grasp the weight of joy. They tend to talk rather stoically about how to feel pleasure in the midst of dysfunctional relationships. Joy is just a marginal psychological trait, not the center of the universe. How is it, he asks, that for centuries, Christendom can write creeds and theological tomes that don't tell us this simple point from Deuteronomy? Why have we not had giant church councils on the nature of joy? Why haven't we had giant church councils, different schools of thought, that wrestle over the intricacies of joy? Why don't our creeds dedicate long sections to expositing the nature of joy for the people of God? It's really challenging, isn't it? You end up, here we are, 2022, and you end with the type of Christian people that you end the conversations with people who love the Bible and doctrine, you end up having conversations that are like, are you a 1642 man or a 1648 man? Which, which, which part of the creed and confession? Do you use the original version, the Westminster Confession, or the American version? And, and what, what Douglas Jones is, it's not wrong to be into all those things, but what Douglas Jones is getting at is, we, we, have, we have shrunk the canvas of who God is and what God is doing in the world to often, sometimes, mere doctrinal concepts. When what God has said to us about being in the world is to know me and love your neighbor and to live abundantly in this beautiful but broken world. It's a really challenging, beautiful point. Do you know in, do you know in um, language and wardrobe, there's a, there's my, my favorite scene is a really neglected scene. It's as Aslan is on the move, the children have met Father Christmas and the, the ice and the snow is beginning to melt, and the white witch is racing to try and stop all of this happening. And she comes across these creatures that have been turned back from stone, back into uh, their creaturely living form. And, and what, are, what are they doing when she finds them? They're having a feast, they're having a, having a meal. And she just stumbles across them, doesn't she? And this is what she screams at them. What is, what is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? And it's, it's a beautiful contrast between when Aslan is on the move, the way the world should work, and when the White Witch is on the, on, on the move, the way the world should work. What did people say about the Lord Jesus? What was one of the main critiques of him? He is a glutton and a drunkard. Because of the way he's living, what was he doing? Moving from house to house and including the kind of people that are left outside. And in, in the language of order, it is the tiny creatures, squirrels, foxes, 
that are sitting around this table, the, the overlooked and neglected creatures that somehow Aslan is fed and is feeding. And it, it, it is not God that ever uses the words gluttony, waste, self-indulgence when people take his good gifts and enjoy them. It, it's the enemy that does that. Here's uh, C.S. Lewis again in the Screwtape Letters. This is the senior devil writing to the junior devil, telling the junior devil what God is really like. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without him minding the least. <laughs> that, that beautiful thing. There are things for humans to do all day long without him minding in the least. And I, I want you to go away with that, friends, this weekend. There are things for you to do in this world that are not in church for you to do all day long without God minding in the least. God wants you to live. wants you to live abundantly, fully, to enjoy all that he has given, to take what he's given, to take it with both hands, and to live full, thankful, grateful, glorious lives. One, one last thing, just to finish. Back, go back to chapter 11, verse 1. Well, one of the questions that you might have, and you might talk about it in question time, how do you balance all of this with mission, evangelism, with, with being a Christian in the world that follows a suffering saviour? Okay? One simple way in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. One of the core principles of life of following Christ is that the way down to the grave is the way up. If you want to find your life, lose it. If you want to save your life, give it away. Only if a seed dies, falls into the ground, can it bear much fruit. The principle of Christian living is giving. Giving yourself to Christ and then giving yourself away to others. And Ecclesiastes knows that life is gift, not gain. So be the kind of person who gives to other people. Give gifts to others. Be a gift to others. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many. No, no one really knows what that means, to be honest. Um, no one knows exactly the image that it's referring to. But the idea, of course, is giving, isn't it? That's clear from the start of verse 2. And the, the idea is that what you give will in some way come back to you, even if it's simply the delight of seeing other people happy what you've given to them. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So it's saying give completely, give fully, and then give even to eight. Go, go, go a little bit beyond complete giving. We would say today, give, give to the nth degree. And I want to encourage you to be like that, friends, to be someone, because, look at the end of verse 2, because death is certain, and because you do not know the future, give while you can. So some people say, secular, secular psychologists or life coaches, whatever you call them, say, because life is uncertain, eat dessert first. 
Because life is uncertain, Eve deserved hers. Ecclesiastes says, because life is uncertain, give your dessert away. Okay, take the best that you have and spend it on other people, not yourself. The, all those things that are, I put on the list, see the Grand Canyon, whatever it is, I'd love a holiday in the Maldives, whatever it is, do them if you can and take other people with you. Give them to other people. Cause other people to flourish through the way that you live in this world and you will live wisely and you will live well. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that this book is in the Bible. Um, it is surprising to us, shocking to us, and uh, we confess before you today afresh that it is so refreshing for us. We want to be people who, because we are yours, spend ourselves for others in your world and who treasure all that you have given to us. Forgive us, we pray, for all the many, many things we take for granted. Forgive us for those rising emotions of entitlement that so quickly surface in our lives in so many different ways, so often with those who are closest to us. And so we pray, would you make us truly humble, truly grateful, people who know we have so much more than we ever deserve from your loving hands. Cause us, we pray, Heavenly Father, to be like your Son, your self-giving Son, the Son of your love who came to serve and to give. Make us like him, we pray. We ask it together in his precious name. Amen.